Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. We're coming to you live today on this Tuesday afternoon, January 28th, 29th actually, 29th in this time zone, and, uh, and from Chile, St. Louis. And much of North America is very uh, frozen these days. We hope you're keeping warm. Uh, I'm your host for this program. I'm Pastor Charles Henriksen, the pastor of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bonterre, Missouri. If you'd like to find out more about our services, go to our website, stmatthewbt.org. Our topic today is going to be the Mass, and we will explain that in a moment. If you'd like to participate... We have a toll-free number all across North America. That number is 800-730-2727. Again, 800-730-2727. Locally here in St. Louis, area code 314-821-0850. Again, 314-821-0850. You can also email us with your comments or questions. The email address, kfuo at kfuo. Org. And I promise you today we will have a, a golden program of great worth that we will sell to you at no charge, which is my hokey way of introducing our three panelists today, Pastors Kevin Golden, Warren Worth, and Mark Sell. Welcome, brothers. Good to be Good here. Good afternoon. All Thanks. right. And uh, sitting immediately to my right is Pastor Mark Sell. And where are you the pastor of? I'm the pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Fenton, Fenton, Missouri. Just in South St. Louis County. Yep, exactly. Just kind of southwest, right on 141. And we have a, a school that's everything from two-year-olds all the way through eighth grade. And where Thriving can people school. find out more about your church? OurSaviorLCS.org. Okay. OurSaviorLCS.org. They're doing some good stuff. In fact, I've been to all three of these churches. They're all doing some great stuff here in the St. Louis area. And then to Mark Sells, right, is Pastor Kevin Golden. And Kevin, where are you the pastor? Village Lutheran Church in Ladue, Missouri. Also just uh, in, in St. Louis County, just west of the seminary. That's right. And uh, is, do you have a website? We do. VillageLutheranChurch.org where you can see the village people. And the, the villagers, the village people, we got them all there. Yes. All so right. which one are you, Kevin? <laughs> oh, are you I'm the village idiot. Yeah. <laughs> Touche. Touche. Good. And then to uh, Kevin well Golden's right uh, is a third panelist. We usually only have two, but well, we put uh, Warren on here uh, because he might have to step out at any moment. Uh, what grandchild might this be? 
Warren? This, this is number nine for us. Wow. God, God has richly blessed us with children and grandchildren, and we're expecting a little girl to be born very soon. Is that your daughter or daughter-in-law? It's my daughter, uh, um, Sarah. She is great with child. She is great with child. They, she and Carl, her husband, have four little boys, and this is a little girl to be born to them. And so we're grateful and pray that God will take care of mother and child and daddy and siblings. And uh, so uh, my wife is also helping out there right now. Great, great. And Warren, where are you? You've one of my, I think you are my most frequent guest on this program. Where are you a pastor? Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Arnold, Missouri. Just south of St. Louis County, right across the river, the northernmost church in Jefferson County you could go to. That's correct. And our website is Good Shepherd. Arnold.org. Very good. All right, so this will be a golden program of great worth that we sell to you for nothing. And our topic today, we're wrapping up, finally, uh, the uh, Article 24 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession on the Mass. And uh, we've been going at this for some time on this program, and it really was a a, a touch point of uh, the Reformation as we will discover once again. But we hope to conclude this article today. So, gentlemen, just off the, off the jump here, what do we mean by the Mass? And I'll throw it out with three guests. I'm just going to throw it out to you, anyone who wants to jump in first. What do we mean by the Mass? It can simply be a way to refer to the divine service, but specifically with the Lord's Supper being involved. So that's real thing that is set before us, is uh, the matter of the Lord's Supper. Yeah, so on on the narrow sense, it's the what's going on in the Lord's Supper itself, and in a little broader sense, is the service, the divine service, right. that includes the Lord's Supper. Any anyone else uh, where that term comes from? I've heard different theories about the term the Mass. One of the theories has to do with uh, at the end of the service when the congregation's dismissed. Yeah, and the Latin for that it is a Mass or you're dismissed or something like that. But how the word is used is, as we've said, in the context of the Lord's Supper. So that is what has been going on here for many pages. Remember, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession is the defense of the Augsburg Confession of 1530, to which the Roman Catholic theologians uh, issued a confutation, a rebuttal, and now the Lutherans, uh, penned here by Melanchthon, are defending our teaching on uh, the Mass. All right, so let's, and we're going to do paragraphs 92 through 99, which wrap up the article today. And by touching on these paragraphs, we're actually going to touch on everything that's basically come up already uh, in this article. So we're going to complete the article today, and then as time allows toward the end, we'll have some reflections on the article as a whole. So I'm just going to start by reading in the reader's edition of Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions. Um... Starting paragraph 92, the first part of it, it says, Let us return to the matter. The Mass is not a satisfaction, either for punishment or for guilt, without faith, ex opera operato. Therefore, applying it to the dead is useless. There is no need here of a longer discussion. Well, it's been a pretty long discussion already. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so... There, they had that, no television back then, Charles. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Melanchthon, that's all he did. I mean, it's the most thorough 
explanation you could find. But he introduces several terms here that have been used before in the article, and we ought to unpack them a little bit. He talks about this term satisfaction, either for punishment or or for guilt. Uh, Pastor Sell, what is meant by satisfaction? Well, satisfaction is the idea that I'm going to make it up to God, more or less. Okay. That, that's a, an easy way to put it, that somehow by following through and just doing this church service, that's the ex-opera part, is, is that if I just do it, somehow I'm going to make it up to God, that this will finally be enough to make God happy is the one side of it. The other side of it is that simply by participating in it, God's going to give me some credit for doing this. Yeah, so it's sort of a pay-it-off scheme as it was being taught by Rome. And he makes a distinction here, satisfaction for punishment or for guilt. One of you, uh, why does he mention both things here? Anyone have a clue on that? I think it's, uh, in many ways, uh, say, uh, two ways to go at the same matter, so that when you have uh, either the punishment that should be meted out upon you, or the guilt that is staining you, maybe even burdening your conscience, how are either one of those removed from you? How is that satisfied? Okay. And that, uh, of course, the big uh, focus here is that, hey, there is no satisfaction without faith. Uh, that trusts in Christ as one who has made satisfaction. Yeah. I think the Roman Catholic theologians would make this distinction between guilt and punishments uh, that, let's say, you get absolution where your guilt is removed. You're not going to hell, but you got to pay off or work off the temporal or the the punishments thereof. Yeah. yeah, so that's the other side of that coin. So that even if you'd say, as the Catholics did, that Jesus took care of your original sin, there's still the actual sins that you've got to deal with. And if your eternal punishment has been dealt with, there's still temporal punishment. And that's what purgatory is for. Yeah. What a handy invention that is. Yeah, and then they you would work that off either with indulgences or good works or the merits of the saints, something other than Jesus, what he did for you on the cross. And it's also part of how... Um, where where Rome kind of went wrong is they turned it into an inventory process mm -hmm. so that, you know, that here is where you could get some kind of satisfaction from original sin to baptism. Okay, that's done. Mm -hmm. And then the next section, you know, to get through uh, up to first communion, you know, and then confirmation and the whole sacramental system then became this this ladder, this incremental um, taking inventory, so to speak, of how you could get your way to heaven. And, and, and it ends up producing such a, a legalistic life under which you are so burdened. And, and this is why it just last um, probably about four or five months ago, I remember doing a funeral for a young lady in her early 40s who passed away. She had three children. And... Um, the mother, though, the the mother was uh, Roman Catholic, and so I preached gospel for the family, and there was some members or some of a bunch of students from our grade school were there and their families, and here is this uh, this elderly grandma coming up to me saying just how beautiful the gospel was, and and it was so nice to hear about forgiveness and mercy. I just hope I could still get into heaven. Mm. And she goes to mass every day. Yes, you know, and, and no that's certainty what, there. And there's absolutely no certainty 
you know, and it's part of that whole problem of incrementalism with got to do this, got to right. maybe get some more forgiveness, maybe get some more. And while both that scenario, also what's going on behind this, as you were laying out for us, Charlie, is uh, the, the Roman doctrine on the matter of satisfaction and such. Uh, hey, there's a very real way that this will cling to your average Christian as well. And where I have seen it at times, I know you guys have as well, is when somebody tells you, you know, there's somebody who is rather has committed some rather horrific crimes and even though they have been well catechized, when they hear this person has come to faith and says that they trust in Christ, and we say, well, granted that that is legitimate, that they actually do have faith, that they're not just trying to con people or something, but granted that they actually have faith in Christ, yes, then they're fully forgiven, and at their death, they will enter into Christ's presence and know with joy and bliss, etc., etc., and how often have I had somebody who is a lifelong Lutheran, well catechized, just say, you know, Pastor, that just doesn't seem right. That's not fair. That's not fair, which is the whole point, obviously, <laughs> of the satisfaction that Christ makes for us, is that it's not a fair thing, and that's why it's so doggone good for us is because he has taken what we deserve no matter how wretched we might be yeah and that's what grace is all about which once again the roman catholic church has corrupted even that beautiful bible word grace becomes something other than what god means by it you know the free gift of god's unmerited love on account of christ is how the scriptures would speak of grace whereas a roman catholic church can speak about it as something that is infused and and you have to merit grace by what you do that'll help you to work it off exactly yes. and all of that then uh yeah is very much about self-righteousness and working one's way to heaven yeah and and that all goes right back to the problem in the first place because they still believe in the spark of christ that's in every human being whether you're a believer or not and 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 because of that quote-unquote spark of christ that is in every human being i mean that's that's why I've always felt that's why it was so easy for them to get into trouble with real forgiveness and, and faith and coming from outside of you instead of having to, uh, you know, keep blowing on that little spark in every person. And notice what this does is it takes Christ and it minimizes him. Now, in reality, you can't minimize Christ. He is who he is and there's no undoing that. But in that person, it takes Christ and tries to make him small so that he's just a spark that needs to be fanned into flame or that he gets the ball going and you've got to keep going Even with it. Even if he does 90%. You've still got your 10%. Or if he does 99.9, that 0.1% is, is still a lot to do. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I don't get it done well. And so what this does is completely minimizes Christ and it wrecks my confidence, which I, I like to always teach um, members at my congregation, hey, Good, sound, biblical theology does two things. It gives all glory to Christ, and it gives all comfort to penitent sinners like us. And we have said this over and over again on this program in the Apology. Melanchthon uses this as a twofold refrain throughout the whole Apology. These two points that you just mentioned, gives our teaching gives all glory to Christ, the mediator, and it gives true comfort to troubled consciences. Yes. And anything contrary to that doesn't do that. All right, we, we are... We've gotten through the first sentence of the first <laughs> paragraph, boys. And today I told Sean Smith, uh, I said, Sean, we are going to finish this article today. So let's do that. But Poor that's John. good. All right. So that was 92A. Let's go to 92B. Uh, there is no need here of a longer discussion. Clearly, these applications for the dead have no references from the scriptures. 
Neither is it safe without the authority of Scripture to set up forms of worship in the church. If it is ever necessary, we will speak at greater length about this entire subject. Why should we now argue with adversaries who misunderstand sacrifice, sacrament, the forgiveness of sins, and faith? Uh, a couple of you touched on this Latin phrase, ex opera operato. Uh, it means uh, out of the work having been worked, literally in Latin. And what is that teaching? You kind of, A couple of you alluded to it. Uh, Pastor Worth, what is ex opera operato? What does that have to do with faith? Well, it doesn't have anything to do with faith, and that's the problem. So the idea is that just by doing the outward act, the benefit is it is there for the person who goes through the outward act. And Rome took it even a step further to say that you can do the outward act that counts not only for you, but also for the dead. For the dead. That was the other thing I was going to get at. Please explain that. How How is the mass being abused for the dead? Well, the idea is you could pay the priest to say Mass. A private Mass. A private Mass, which doesn't have to have anybody there to uh, participate or receive. Mm-hmm. But, was, Warren, but, you got to admit, we're really missing out on a great fundraiser. Money. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I Rome, mean, you know. Rome is still doing this. But the idea, once again, is if the Roman Catholic Church teaches that when the priest says the words of institution, you know, Jesus says, this is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you for the remission of sins. That Jesus is re-sacrificed in a real, though unbloody sacrifice for the sins of the living and the dead. And that teaching, which was present in the Reformation, is still present in Rome today and is still used by the church uh, to, to raise money, as you said. And people uh, wanting to be assured that their deceased loved ones are okay will willingly pay money so that the the priest will say Mass to pay off the sins of those who have already died. Mm -hmm. And what a terrible, terrible thing that is, because once again, you're robbing Christ of his glory. On the cross, what does he say? It is finished, paid in full. So now you're saying, Jesus, you didn't do enough. And likewise, what comfort do you have if you're continually wondering, is my loved one at home with the Lord? Am I at peace with the Lord? Will I uh, be received into heaven uh, when I die. And so, once again, just as you said, if if you don't get the gospel right, you rob Christ of his glory and you rob consciences of the peace and comfort that comes from the promise of what Christ has done, which is all sufficient. It is the one sacrifice that took away all sins for all sinners forever. And you have peace with God through the death and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, two other points on this on this paragraph. Having been a pastor in Utah for six and a half, seven years, whatever it was, it was interesting because you saw so many things that the Mormon church picked up from all these heresies, and that was one of them, because of course they baptize for the dead, and they mm-hmm. they do all kinds of ceremonies for the dead. And that was one of the things they picked up from the Roman Catholic Church, was somehow we could have an effect on those people who have already died by doing things. You know. mm-hmm. now, Fun fact. A couple other things here in this paragraph that we can draw uh, some uh, some uh, assumptions from, and he says here about uh, clearly these applications for the dead have no references from the scriptures. Neither is it safe without the authority of scripture to set up forms of worship. What is this saying about our view, Pastor Golden, of Holy Scripture? 
Well, Scripture is the sole norm for both doctrine and practice. And so anything that goes beyond Scripture is a novelty that we cannot hang our hat on as far as having any confidence uh, of its uh, that it's pleasing to God or that it brings blessing to us. Or if we go back to those two items that we mentioned before, that anything that goes beyond that, I can have no confidence that it glorifies Christ or comforts the burdened conscience. Yeah, and so the doctrine of purgatory, masses for the dead, there's nothing in Scripture to substantiate exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. You could even put this in line with, and this is kind of foreshadowing something that's going to come up later in these chapters, um, is that uh, in the Old Testament, you had uh, this refrain from the Lord saying, hey, when you go into these lands, they're going to set before you gods whom your fathers did not know and whom your father's fathers did not know, and you shall not go after them. In other words, uh, the Lord has given you who he is and how his worship is to take place. So don't go making up something new or borrowing from what others are doing. No, stay with what the Lord has given you. Yeah, in a few right paragraphs, we're going to get, a, he, uh, Melanchthon even brings up about yes. the, the religions around Israel in the Old Testament. We'll get to that in a little bit. But moving on now to paragraph 93, and uh, this just needs a little bit of uh, uh, clarification here. It's a little unfamiliar to most of us. Uh, he says, the Greek canon does not apply the offering as a satisfaction for the dead because it applies it equally for all the blessed patriarchs, prophets, and apostles. Apparently, the Greeks make an offering as thanksgiving and do not apply it as satisfaction for punishments. Furthermore, they do not speak of offering solely the Lord's body and blood, but of the other parts of the Mass, namely prayers and thanksgiving. After the consecration, they pray that it may benefit those who partake of it. They do not speak of others. Then they add, quote, Yet we offer to you this reasonable service for those having departed in faith, forefathers, fathers, patriarchs, prophets, apostles, end quote. And then he, uh, Melanchthon writes, Reasonable service, however, uh, it's a, a reference from Romans 12, however, does not mean this the offering itself but prayers and all things that are preferred there. Any of you understand what is meant by here the Greek canon? Why does Melanchthon, who looked into what the Greek Orthodox Church was doing compared to Rome, why does he bring this up? Well, once again, what were the Lutherans being accused of, of departing from the teaching of the historic church? And making up something on their own. And so was just he theirs. takes pains to say, no, we're sticking with what Christians have always and everywhere believed and practiced. And so as they're making the case for the Lutheran teaching on the Lord's Supper and the correcting of abuses from the Roman church, then not only do you name scripture, you name the church fathers, and then you can say besides what's going on in the Western church and has for centuries, now let's look at what the liturgy of the Greek Orthodox churches And he's would saying say. they, weren't, they aren't even doing what Rome is doing. Correct. Right. And Rome does recognize the Greek church, Greek Orthodoxy, as legitimate and such. And so it's not as if you're pulling out some group that Rome would have considered heretical. No, they even recognize this is true church. Yeah. And look what they're doing. So the, the, Lutheran, the Lutherans are saying we're not doing anything that's just us. Right. In, in rejecting uh, masses for the dead. This isn't just the German sect. Yeah, right. 
And uh, so Melanchthon and Luther, they looked into the church fathers. They, and Melanchthon especially was interested in what the Greek Orthodox, there were some feelers out, can we get, to get, you know, can we get together with you guys? Mm-hmm. And it didn't work out, but uh, that's the point there. And then paragraph uh, 94 we got two minutes here, but I'll, let me just do... Frankly, uh, I'm thankful for that, because I can't grow a beard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, paragraph 94. Um, regarding the adversaries quoting the fathers about the offering for the dead, we know that the ancients speak of prayer for the dead, which we do not ban. We disapprove of applying the Lord's Supper for the dead by the outward act, ex opera operato. The ancients do not favor the adversaries regarding the outward act, opus operatum, even though they have the references, especially of uh, Gregory or the moderns, we hold up to them the most clear and certain scriptures. I find this interesting, where Melanchthon says, uh, we do not ban prayer for the dead. Now, in my pastoral ministry of 26 years or so, I've never... I have prayers thanking God for the departed, but not prayers for them to get out of judgment or something like that. Any any thoughts on this? I would agree that in our churches, we pray a prayer of thanks to God for what he did for the departed person, a prayer uh, that we may imitate the example of faith of the departed, but also a prayer of comfort for the survivors. Uh, but we don't pray for the dead as if prayers for them would get them out of hell or out of purgatory and into heaven. Nothing we do after the person has departed will uh, change that. We believe what Scripture says, it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. From the book so, of Hebrews. Yeah, so so uh, again, as he goes on to say, people have erred and can be deceived. So we stick with what the Scriptures clearly say on this and don't be, go beyond the Scriptures in that regard. Very good. I think that's enough on that point. And Stephanie, I think we're coming up on break. Is that right? Let's take our break right now. You're listening to Concord Matters here on KFUO. Worldwide KFUO Radio salutes our day sponsors on this Tuesday, January 29th, 2019. Today's day sponsors are Robert and Marilyn Wardenberg. Today's day sponsors have made a contribution to Worldwide KFUO Radio in honor of Marilyn as they celebrate her birthday today. Once again, we say thank you to Robert and Marilyn Wardenberg of Glencoe, Missouri. Today's Worldwide KFUO Day Sponsors. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The prophet Isaiah chapter 55 verses 10 and 11. Begin and conclude your day with the word that accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent. Morning prayer at 7 a.m. and evening prayer at 5 p.m. Weekdays on KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. The broadcasts of morning prayer and evening prayer are underwritten by Lutherans for Life. Join 
Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service and congregations across the country as we celebrate Refugee Sunday, a time to lift up the gifts that migrants and refugees bring to our country and to reflect on Christ's message to welcome the stranger. Together, we can continue the mission of welcoming, embracing, and empowering newcomers. Visit lirs.org slash kit to download the Refugee Sunday Kit for your congregations, including worship guides, bulletin inserts, videos, and more. lirs.org slash kit. For economic reasons, most Dutch painters of the 17th century painted landscapes, city views, and portraits. So what motivated Rembrandt to create more than 300 works of art on biblical themes? Art historians suggest Rembrandt may have been inspired by Bible stories from his mother. He also tended to portray the more human side of even the most heroic biblical characters. Favorite subjects included Hebrew Bible figures such as Abraham, Ruth, Saul, and David. His brushstrokes captured dramatic moments, including the blinding of Samson, the stoning of Stephen, and the crucifixion of Jesus. Rembrandt's motivation to capture the Bible on canvas is not fully known, but his masterpieces grace the halls of museums all around the world. Engage with the Bible and its impact across history. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. We're back now. We're back now on uh, Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. I'm your host, Pastor Charles Henriksen. Other pastors in the studio here, Mark Sell, Kevin Golden, and Warren Worth. We've been discussing Article 24 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession on the Mass. And we got an email comment here from uh, Melissa uh, in, uh, it looks like, northern Kansas. Uh, And she writes... Thank you, thank you, thank you for talking about this with the explanation of the Catholicism. Every week I am left wondering, why do the Catholics believe this? Or what scripture or tradition do they cite for these things? Keep it up. I live in a largely Catholic area. I attended the local Catholic college. My son goes to the local Catholic high school next year because our awesome Lutheran school only goes to 8th grade. I want to understand... Let's hear it for awesome Lutheran schools. Yes. I want to understand not just that they are wrong, but why they believe they are right. And so thank you, uh, Melissa, for writing in. And yeah, we're not just uh, here to bash Rome. We're here to explain why these teachings and practices uh, are harmful to people, actually, and uh, go against God's word. Uh, And hopefully that uh, people will correct uh, their thinking to bring it in line with what God reveals in Holy Scripture and that glorifies Christ and gives true peace to troubled consciences. All right, so we're picking it back up here in Article 24 of the Apology, and we pick it up with uh, paragraph 96. And I'll read the first half of this paragraph here. The adversaries, that would refer to the Roman Catholic theologians, the adversaries also also falsely quote against us the condemnation of Arius. I don't think this is the same Arius as the uh, as the, uh, the famous heretic. Not, this is the this is not so famous heretic. Yeah, this is A E R I U S. So they quote against us the condemnation of Arius, who they say was condemned for denying that an offering is made. 
for the living and the dead in the Mass. They often use this clever turn, quote the ancient heresies and falsely compare our cause with them to crush us by this comparison. Uh, Epiphanius declares that Irius maintained prayers for the dead are useless. Uh, he finds fault with this. We do not find favor. We do not. We do not favor Iris either. And I'm going to pause right there. So, what is this clever turn that the adversaries are using, Pastor Golden? Well, you could say in many ways it's just an ad hominem attack, which is a logical fallacy where you just call somebody a name, you attack the person by, um, and in this case, they're doing it falsely by trying to align you with somebody that you don't actually agree with. Now, it's it's an example of I would just call it intellectual laziness mm -hmm. because rather than actually address somebody somebody's argument and position and show why you disagree with it instead you falsely say that oh they agree with this other person who we all know is wrong and therefore that's why they have to be rejected even though they're making a false equivalency yeah it might be the same as um in our political climate today what is the thing that you do if you really don't like what somebody's saying you call them a nazi all right yeah now Without doing the work to actually demonstrate, is their position actually in line with Nazi ideology? Now, you may they may be completely wrong in what they're saying, but just to label them Nazi right away is a way to kind of shut down the argument and not actually address what's at stake. Or and that's if, what's going if, on here. if the person you're against happens to have one view that might be the same as somebody else who had a lot of bad wrong thinking yes you lump them in together guilt by association yeah. uh, kind of like what Eck did at the Leipzig right. debate. you can call oh this, it's Hussite you're a Hussite yes you can call this an illegitimate totality transfer oh we Veltzians <laughs> <Yeah>. here uh, <laughs> know, what you know that term about. so the uh, the idea is yeah you get one thing in common out of a dozen oh you're in the same league with them even yeah. though the where actually the other group was in error was not on that one thing. It's not the point. Right? Yeah. It's kind of like saying, um, you know, how often have we been accused of being, you know, oh, you're just like Catholics because you've got all that liturgy and such. Well, we do differ with Catholics on some very significant theological matters, but on this one, we do have a very, you know, we follow the same classic ordo, the historic order for the divine service and such. So, yeah, there's some things you're going to notice that are very the same. Hey, similar to that would be, hey, the Catholics are great at confessing the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm all with them on that. Yeah, all right. Yeah. But there's other things. So don't yeah. say we're Catholic because we um, confess the Trinity along with the Roman Catholics. Yeah. I like to say we do Catholic right, which is what the Reformation is all about. You know, the Catholic yeah. in the correct yeah. sense. So be yeah. with what all Christians everywhere have always confessed on the basis of God's holy word. Were the Catholic Church gone right? <laughs> That's how I explain Lutheranism. Catholic done right. <laughs> all right. So uh, let's go on here in paragraph 96. Um, let's see. He, he goes on and writes, but we do agree with you uh, because you uh, we, we do not favor Iris either, but we do agree... We do argue with you. I got to get my eyes checked, but we do argue with you, be, the, you the Catholics, because you, do, you, you Roman Catholic adversaries, you defend a heresy that clearly conflicts with the prophets, apostles, and holy fathers. This heresy is that the mass justifies by the outward act. There's that phrase again, ex opera operato, that when it apply that when applied, it merits 
the pardon of guilt and punishment even for the unjust if they do not present an obstacle. We object to these deadly errors which divert people from the glory of Christ's passion and entirely overthrow the doctrine about the righteousness of faith. So, Pastor Sell, are we just picking a fight to pick a fight? Um, why is this an important uh, thing to argue against the adversaries? Why is their teaching wrong? Well, I think it finally comes down to <clears throat> what what is really going to bring comfort and forgiveness and mercy to the people sitting in the pew who need so desperately God's forgiveness, mm -hmm. who so desperately want some kind of hope and comfort because the sins are just burning me. And how can I get my burning hand under the cool water? And 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 so I think it, it finally comes down to this understanding. Let's not take the Lord's Supper and turn it into another another ladder to climb that I'm never going to get to the top of the ladder. Yeah. And it just becomes so burdensome. It's like I said, that, that one gal, my, my heart completely broke after that funeral one day because here's this lady going to the Lord's Supper every day at a Roman Catholic church, and it's not enough. And yeah. she's doing it seven days a week, and it's not enough. And she And she just hopes that she could see her daughter again someday. She yeah. just hopes. And and so it, it rips any comfort away from from the believer that says, you know, not enough yet. You mm -hmm. you gotta keep working because you're never gonna see the believers again. You're never really gonna get to heaven. You gotta do a little bit more work. And and it's so frustrating. And this is where it kind of makes the turn to say, this is why it's so practical. This is why at our Savior in Fenton, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every weekend. It, it's why it's worth mm -hmm. putting in six over 600 grand a year into a Lutheran school, because here we've got 130 kids being fed this pure forgiveness. They're drinking mm -hmm. from this well, mm -hmm. these waters of eternal life on a daily basis. It, it, it's the reason why we're here as a church, so that people can be satisfied in the forgiveness of sins and the thirst can finally stop. Yeah, as Melanchthon says here, these errors, these deadly errors, divert people from the glory of Christ's passion. I just came across a Luther quote yesterday, and I hope it's accurate, not apocryphal. Luther is ascribed to have said, when I look at myself, I wonder if I can ever be saved. But when I look at Christ, I wonder how I can ever that I can ever be lost you know that you look at yourself you're gonna doubt you could ever be saved but if you look at Christ uh, you you know that you cannot be lost yeah and this is proper distinction of law and gospel the law is always turning you in on yourself to see your wretched condition because of your sin but the gospel points you away from yourself and directly at Christ, and that's where all your confidence is. Good. I promised Sean Smith we're going to get through paragraph 99, so we're going <laughs> to press on here. Um, and Golden, this will be right up your alley, because now we're getting into Old Testament stuff, and you have your doctorate in that. Um, let's go on with uh, paragraph 97, really into 98. In the law... The godless had a similar belief. Uh, that is, they believed they merited the forgiveness of sins, not freely through faith, 
but through sacrifices by the outward act. Therefore, they increased these services and sacrifices, set up the worship of Baal in Israel, and even sacrificed in the groves in Judah. Therefore, the prophets condemned this belief and war against not only the worshipers of Baal, but also other priests who made sacrifices ordained by God with this godless belief. This belief that such services and sacrifices atone remains and always will remain in the world. Carnal, fleshly, carnal people cannot tolerate that the honor of an atoning sacrifice belongs solely to Christ's sacrifice because they do not understand the righteousness of faith. And I'm going to read paragraph 98 because it continues in the same vein. Rather, they, are, they assign equal honor to the rest of the services and sacrifices. The godless priests in Judah held a false belief about such, such sacrifices. Baal worship even continued in Israel. Nevertheless, a church of God was there that objected to these godless services. Baal worship remains in the realm of the Pope in the abuse of the Mass. By it, they think that they can merit the pardon of guilt and punishment for the unrighteous. It seems that this Baal worship will persist as long as the reign of the Pope. It will continue until Christ comes to judge and, by the glory of his return, destroy the reign of the Antichrist. Meanwhile, all who truly believe the gospel should condemn these wicked services. Against God's command, they were treated to cloud over Christ's glory and the righteousness of faith. Pastor Golden, uh, you who have your doctorate in uh, biblical studies, especially in the Old Testament, what is this matter of um, Baal worship and pagan religions around Israel? How is he comparing that to what's happening under the Pope? So the the primary comparison that's being made here is that both in both instances it everything hinges upon the merit of the sacrifice being performed by a human individual and thereby pre- procuring um, favor in the sight of the deity that is set before them and so um, the I, I appreciate that in our edition here of the Book of Concord, the woodcut that they have imprinted on the corresponding page is Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. That was one yep. of my favorite lessons in Sunday school as a kid growing up. And this is a great example of it because here, uh, what was the outlook of the prophets of Baal? Hey, if we call out enough and we offer enough sacrifice, we slash our arms enough, if we do enough of ourselves, then Baal will respond. Elijah ends up even uh, mocking them for this very outlook about saying, hey, maybe you need to do a little bit more to wake up Baal and get his response and such. But when it comes to the Lord, it's never a matter of you have earned his response, but rather he responds out of grace and mercy. Now, this goes a little bit away from the specifics of Baal worship, but my favorite example of this also goes back to Exodus. You know, why did the Lord deliver his people out of bondage in, in Egypt? And Uh, If you read in the text, this is Exodus chapter 2, you find that they're crying out in the midst Mm -hmm. of their slavery, this is rough, and it's not as if God says, oh, those poor pitiful people, they need some help, nor does he say something like, man, they are so incessant with their cries, I need to shut them up and and move (laughs) on. No, what he ends up saying is that he's going to deliver them because he remembers 
the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, it's not because they have merited any of this, but because God has promised it. He's and true to his promise. God is always true to his promise. And this is the difference between the biblical faith, the worship of Baal, and worship of Baal, understand here, is All used, pagan, all natural religion. Yeah, any you religion gotta satisfy outside of the, the biblical gods. faith. Yeah. You know, if you're, They're all law-based. The biblical faith is uh, focused on the gospel. If, and, and, and ancient religion was about... Kids, cattle, and crops. <laughs> That's, yeah, <laughs> really. Yes. Yeah. And if if things were going well, the gods must be pleased with you. you got a if, lot of kids, if, a lot of cattle, a lot of crops. If and, those are mm-hmm. going bad, you got to do something to stimulate the gods or get on their yep. good side yep. again. That's the nature of pagan religion. Mm-hmm. We have a follow up question from Cheryl in Indianapolis about Baal worship. Welcome to the program, Cheryl. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not about Baal worship. <laughs> oh, okay. What is it? the Lutheran service book. Okay, which is not to be confused with Baal worship. <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> what is your question there, Cheryl? Okay, at the beginning of Article 24, it says we celebrate uh, the Mass every Lord's Day. Yes. Well, in the Lutheran service book, there are five settings of yes. the service. Uh, setting one, two, and three have an, a little footnote in red after the prayer of the church. Where yes. If there is no communion, the service concludes with the Lord's Prayer, concluding collect and the benediction. Yeah. The settings four and five don't have that in there. Mm-hmm. So what I'm wondering is, do we have a divine service? Do we celebrate a divine service without communion? All right. I'm going to handle. That's a great question. I have discussed this many times. I'm going to handle this one to start. All right. <laughs> the intent of the Lutheran Church. And in fact, the biblical pattern, even in the New Testament uh, and throughout church history, is that the divine service of word and sacrament and sacrament is is done every Lord's Day. It's not word or sacrament. And there's a long, we could have a several programs just on how the Lutheran Church got away from every Sunday communion. That is not the historic tradition, not the historic practice of Christendom. So, uh, but thankfully, I would say since probably the mid-90s, I've seen a healthy return to every Sunday communion in the Lutheran Church, which is the authentic Lutheran practice. So really, in the old TLH, page 15 was the communion service, uh, page five was the non-communion service, uh, which really is a an umding. It's a non-thing for Sunday morning. And that's uh, more or less when you don't have a clergyman available. Yeah, there was whole yeah, historical and... reasons how, how we got away from every Sunday communion. But the biblical Christian Lutheran practice is every Sunday communion. So in the divine services where it says, if there's no communion today, skip to this, that's kind of a concession to churches that have not yet restored uh, the full divine service of word and sacrament. I know one of the things at at, at Our Savior... Thank you, Cheryl, for your call. Our Savior, we have um, Lord's Supper at every service every weekend. And Mm -hmm. um, and part of that was leading the elders and the congregation through exactly why it is such a gift, why it is just this outpouring of forgiveness, why it is the, the, the wonderful miracle of Christ coming among us and making one the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And when you focus on what the gospel aspect, the forgiving aspect, the comforting aspect 
of the Lord's Supper, you realize why it has to be the the habit of the Christian faith what, to sit down and feast with Christ. Let him feed you. Enjoy the gifts and share it with each other. Yeah. And and so when you when you have that picture of what going to church really is all about, you then grasp why we have such a sound and biblical view of church and ministry in the Lutheran church. And and the the practice that we got into falling away from the Lord's Supper every service mostly uh has to do with of course the 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 plague of pietism. Uh, in in the early also 20th an over, century, also an overreaction against Catholicism. Correct, it was and too Catholic, and we want to be American and all that. It, exactly, and and then the other side of it is, you know, we did have a clergy short, shortage. Yeah. You know, in times on when the there was a cur- and the, the frontiers, you know, moving yeah. west all the way way over there to Missouri. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in the last few minutes, but I promised we'd get through paragraph 99. And last... I'm trying to stop you at every chance I get. No, sorry. <laughs> that would be the connotative imperfect there Ooh, sweet. of uh, <laughs> attempting. Yeah. He tried to prevent Jesus <laughs> yeah, from getting well back. Well done. Yeah. All right. You're a hoot, Charlie. Thank you. Uh, paragraph 99. We have briefly. Now, here's where you laugh, where Melanchthon says, we have briefly said these things. I don't think a a German theologian can ever say anything briefly. We have briefly said these things about the Mass for the following reasons. And he's going to give two main reasons here. First, we hope that all good people everywhere understand that we keep the dignity of the Mass and show its true use with the greatest zeal. That's the first point, and that relates to what Cheryl was saying and what maybe we have time to discuss a little later. Secondly, he says, second, our reasons for disagreeing with the adversaries are most just, as he's explained throughout this article, why their teachings are bad. Uh, And then he says, further, we would encourage all good people not to help the adversaries in the profanation of the Mass, burdening themselves with other people's sin. This is an important cause and an important subject no less important than the work of the prophet Elijah, who condemned the worship of Baal. We have presented this important discussion with the greatest restraint, and now reply without using abusive words. But if the adversaries push us to collect all kinds of abuses of the Mass, uh, we will not present the discussion with such toleration. Thus ends the article. So... um, what are the important reasons why Melanchthon went to such great length here, Warren, uh, on the Mass? Well, again, he wants to make sure that people understand that we Lutherans keep the Mass, honor the Mass, and recognize that the gift of the Lord's Supper is this wonderful, precious gift that is to be used as given to us by Christ. Now, why? why how does this practice? Remember, in the, uh, in the Augsburg Confession, he said, uh, we keep the teachings. We've just uh, corrected a few abuses. And, you know, they had like one paragraph on Article 4 on justification and then these abuses in penance and the Mass and so forth. They say we corrected. How does the Mass become what you might say the touch point for getting at the underlying issue that's the real problem with Catholicism? Because it's all about the forgiveness of sins. Go ahead. And if you understand the Mass correctly, if you understand the doctrinal teaching on the Lord's Supper correctly, you understand that the sacrifice is already made once and for all by Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. The one atoning sacrifice. In this article, he distinguished between 
the one atoning sacrifice, and what kind of other kinds of sacrifice? Eucharistic sacrifice. Which uh, means? Which means that we're giving thanks to God in response to the one atoning sacrifice of Christ. And so the benefits of what Jesus, by his life, suffering, death, and resurrection, has earned for us now are distributed to us in the sacrament where the Lord himself, by his word of promise, attached to this uh, tangible thing of eating bread and drinking wine, which now are the body and blood of Christ, in this way we receive the benefits of forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. So talk about the the direction of the arrows, if you will, in distinguishing sacrifice and sacrament. Absolutely. So the sacrifice, the arrow goes up from man to God. In sacrament, it's from God to man. Now, obviously, it's the man, Christ Jesus, who is God and man, who made the one atoning sacrifice, whereby now we can approach the holy God on the basis of his mediation in our behalf. His atoning sacrifice, whereby he paid for all of our sins forever, is how we now can approach God and receive from God what he promises us on account of Christ, namely the forgiveness of sins, and where there's forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. And so that is such a key thing. And if you get if you get the whole doctrine of the Lord's Supper wrong and turn it into something that we do to try to appease God, then now we're back to salvation by works rather than by grace. Now, Pastor we'll... Sell, you want to jump in on oh, this? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. It, it, you know, it, it's one of the things that uh, that really is exciting as a pastor is, and I think, uh, Pastor Golden, you have a preschool too, Correct. right? We do. Yeah, and uh, so when you watch the children come together, I know in our service at Our Savior in Fenton, we we do all five services that Cheryl was talking about, you know, throughout, Mm -hmm. you know, we switch them all up and everything. But it's exciting when you see all these little children uh, starting to sing the hymns and singing the liturgy. And and I know when we do our chapels on Wednesdays, we're using different liturgies, uh, usually the matins and the vespers, or, or I mean matins and morning prayer and, and different things to to work and you see this whole understanding of forgiveness of sins seep into these children's lives and comes out of their mouths and we had um uh, we've had some young people pass away let's just say in the last month or so or in the last several months and um it is the hope that the forgiveness of sins is absolutely free and these children in our school and your preschool and our churches the adults they learn how freeing that is when you realize forgiveness is just poured out to you into your faith the faith that god gave to you and that is then when the power of the lord's supper or the mass of as we've been talking about that's when it really comes alive for people because you're you're using this language from heaven this language from god it's all biblical language and you're using it and singing it, and now he just sits you down and feeds you. Dear friends, and, thank you for listening to Concord Matters Day. Just to wrap this up, the one atoning sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for you on the cross, by which he won your forgiveness and everlasting life, is delivered in the means of grace, in word and sacrament, including this precious sacrament of our Lord's body and blood in the Mass. And so this one sentence from paragraph 99 is a good way to close this off. We keep the dignity of the Mass and show its true use with the greatest zeal. 
And that's because God is giving you his gifts in the Lord's Supper. You've been listening to Concord Matters here on KFUO.